Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 13 Conclusion of the Discourse But we must draw our study of this infinite subject to an end. Though in this discourse at the Supper, and especially in this teaching of the Holy Ghost, we seem to come nearer to the actual working of the mind of Jesus Christ our Lord than anywhere else in the Gospels, still by no mere human study can we hope to follow him. There comes a point where human words mean little, where the reality is beyond expression. Even in the narrative given by St. John, we are conscious how words fail him at every step. He says only part of what he means and leaves us perforce in mystery. Much more must it be so with us. We reach forward until we are lost. Were everything to be clear, we know that it would be wanting to the truth, and it would be a human concept and no more. And when Moses was gone up, a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord dwelt upon Sinai, covering it with a cloud six days. And the seventh day he called him out of the midst of the cloud, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a burning fire upon the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. The conclusion of the discourse is full of pathos. In it, Jesus seems to concentrate all the affection and all the generosity that human words can carry. Nay, the words themselves seem scarcely able to bear the strain. To our human understanding, they almost seem exaggerated. Though commentators will not say it, Yet by their silence and reserve, they show their hesitation to take Jesus Christ our Lord strictly at his word. First is the appeal to his own that they should ask of him anything they wished. So strongly does he urge them as to declare that whatever they had asked of him before was as nothing. Yet what had they not asked? One had once demanded what return they should have who had left all and followed him. And he had promised that they should be raised to royal dignity. Other two, following on this promise, had petitioned that they might sit, the one on his right side and the other on his left, in the kingdom. And he had promised them at least the way to that distinction. But all these requests were as nothing now. He would urge them to more and more. With all he had given them that night, he was not satisfied. He must give to the end of time. Amen, amen, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Many times before, he had spoken of prayer and of the certain fruits of prayer, but never with such bounty as on this occasion. Early in his teaching on the mountain over Capernaum, he had assured them of the Father's love for them, and that if they had asked him for bread, he would not give them a stone. He had given them a form of prayer, simple, inclusive as a model. He had put intentions for prayer before them, the increase of laborers in the harvest, the casting out of devils, protection against evils within and without. But now he spoke with a lavishness which knew no limit. If a few days before he had told them that faith would move mountains, Now he assures them 
that prayer can win from the Father anything at all. Prayer, he tells them, is the secret of all joy, no matter what be the cause of sorrow. Thus, before he leaves them, he gives them the cure for all anxiety. Next, he looks at their immediate need. All through his life, despite the intimacy between them, there always had been something of mystery about him. It had taken them long to discover that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and when they had discovered it, the mystery had only grown the greater. He had done many things among them that had only made them wonder more and more. Who is this man? For the winds and the sea obey him. At times his words had been full of mystery. He had spoken in parables, which he alone had been able to explain. He had told them of the future in language that seemed intended to have a hidden meaning. He had more than once blamed them that they had not understood what he had said. Now, he deals with them quite differently. He will not blame them anymore. They are only human. They cannot see very far. He has been compelled to speak to them before in words hidden from the beginning of the world. The time will soon come when he will speak to them in language which the Holy Ghost will teach them clearly to understand. Let them not be troubled. Let them not be afraid. These things have I spoken to you in Proverbs. The hour cometh when I will no more speak to you in Proverbs, but will speak to you plainly of the Father. And then, as if to crown all, as if to wipe away once for all whatever might have arisen between them in the past, he concludes his assurance, not only with a plenary pardon, but with the promise of a reward that shall be theirs. Sometimes in their ignorance and perhaps in their misplaced anxiety, they have complained to him of what he did. They have warned him when he seemed to them imprudent. They have encouraged him when he held back and chose to be alone. When he spoke of doom coming upon himself, they have tried to lift up his hope. And he, on his side, has been compelled to complain of them, of their presumption, of their dullness, of their arrogance in regard to the kingdom. He knows that in another hour he will have bitter experience of their fickleness. But he will not now look at any of these things. He will see only the best in them, both in the past and in the future. The lover will not allow himself a word or a thought against his beloved, not though he is well aware of what soon will be. In that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not to you that I will ask the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. They have believed, they have loved. Let that for the present be enough. Many sins shall be forgiven them because they have loved much, because they have believed and have stood with him always. The Father himself will be their Father indeed. Later that night, when Simon Peter stood in need of repentance, with words such as these ringing in his ears, how could he have failed to begin to weep? For with all his weakness, Simon loved. With all his denials, he had once nobly confessed his belief in the Son of God. With all his failure, he knew the steadfast heart of him who had said, 
The Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me and have believed. Last of all, there remained the one question that had troubled the minds of his beloved all that night. He had said that he would soon go away, and that they could not go with him, and sorrow had filled their hearts. Whither was he going that they could not go with him? As the supper had gone on, they had felt more than ever that they must not separate. He meets again their silent questioning, for they dared not ask him openly any more, and he answers them in the same spirit as that in which he had already spoken. He will not look at the dreadful prospect immediately before him. He leaps beyond the thought of the passion and Calvary, that for one ecstatic moment their joy may be full. He will not allow a word of these. In the simplest language, he tells them the greater truth, that as he came from the Father, so to the Father he must return. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. Thus, in one way after another, now that the end has definitely come, Jesus fills these men with assurance and hope. It's founded on the evidence of his own real abiding love that nothing could destroy. And the assurance is always centered round the Father. Let them ask the Father, and the Father will give them anything they ask. Let them have no doubt. They shall come to know plainly of the Father. Let them fear nothing. The Father loves them. Let them lift up their eyes and see. He himself is going to the Father, and all will be well. St. John ends the story of the supper on the same note as that on which he had begun. Before the festival day of the Pasch, Jesus, knowing that his hour was come, that he should pass out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The eleven who heard all this encouragement, coming as it did, hot from the heart of one who loved them and did not care to hide it, were carried out of themselves. In the light which love poured out upon them, they saw more than they had ever seen before. They seemed to themselves almost to stand in the presence of the Father. It was all still full of mystery. What they saw, it would have been impossible for them to define. But they did see. The Father, invisible, time and space eliminated, the Spirit brooding on the infinite expanse of being, themselves lost, yet no less real, like stars in the infinite sky. It was the vision of faith blinding as is the brightest light, yet greater and deeper and more sure than is any vision of sense. It was the certainty of faith far more firm than any certainty of reason. They knew. What they knew they could not say, but their momentary ecstasy of joy could not be restrained. Like him they could only speak in human words. Like him they strained them to the breaking point unable to express the thoughts that were in their hearts. His disciples say to him, Behold, now thou speakest plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we know that thou knowest all things, and thou needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. 
So enthusiastic for this single moment were these men. In an hour, what a change there would be. Still, would Jesus give them this one vision of the truth to strengthen them before the darkness gathered? He let them express their faith unreservedly, without compromise, as they had never expressed it before. They saw so much. They thought they saw everything. It was that phase of spiritual consolation common with the saints when the soul is liable to appear foolish, drunk with the ecstasy of Jesus Christ. But Jesus knew well how to gauge their ebullition, and the tragic pathos of his last words lies in the fact that he knew. These men had spoken more truly than they realized when they said, Now we know that thou knowest all things. For the fact of that knowledge from the beginning gives an added color to the whole drama of his life and death. Whatever happened to him, Jesus foreknew it all the time. St. John had been careful to dwell upon it many times. Evidently to him the recollection was of first importance for one who would fully understand the master whom he loved. Early in his gospel he had told us that he knew all men and he needed not that any should give testimony of man, for he knew what was in man. Again, at the feeding of the multitude near Bethsaida beyond the lake, when Jesus asked, Whence shall these buy bread that they may eat? John has been careful to add that he himself knew what he would do. And here again at the beginning of the supper story, he has emphasized it. Jesus knowing all. Yet in spite of it, Jesus loving to the end. This is the background which John would have us never forget. In this light only it would seem that we can understand the full significance of the words that follow, the closing words of the memorable discourse. Only when we hold to it closely do we realize the agony in the heart of him that spoke them. He has said so much to comfort and encourage others, he has said so little of his own distress. He has been so intent on those to whom he spoke. He has so passed over himself that we who read are apt to be diverted from him to the other actors in the scene. Jesus answered them, Do you believe? Behold, the hour cometh, and now is, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. This is the first vision before him as he now turns and looks into the future. In spite of all he has said and done and given, in spite of all they have promised in response, they will at the very first trial leave him alone to fight his battle for himself. Still, even under that provocation, he will not retaliate. He will not withdraw one item of the love he has shown to them that night. He will not even linger on the picture. He will not end this supper, this first agape, on such a note of gloom. He recovers himself, as he has done when comforting them, so will he do for himself. He reaches forward to the vision beyond. And yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And in the strength of that assurance, he can overlook all else 
and turn once more to his own and say, These things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you shall have distress, but have confidence. I have overcome the world. The three steps just narrated in this ending are characteristic. We have seen them illustrated many times before during the life of Jesus Christ our Lord, but seldom if ever with such distinctness. These men have spoken with enthusiasm, and so far as they knew, with sincerity. But Jesus has not been deceived. Before the night was much older, there would be a change. They would desert him who had never deserted them. They would leave him, though he had assured them of so much for having followed him. They would seek shelter and protection elsewhere, away from him, each man for himself, though he had told them that if any man came to him, he would find life. For an instant there is a recoil at the prospect. The loneliness of the combat oppresses him more heavily now than on that day when others had deserted him and he had said, Will you also go away? And they had answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. These were the same men, and they had learnt so much more, they had been given so much more since then. But he will not consider that. As it were, he will brace himself up for what must come. He throws away the whole temptation to be sad and lament and find support in the abiding presence of the Father. Then, when he has by this means confirmed himself in peace and therefore in courage, at once his thoughts revert again to his beloved. Come what may to himself, all must be well with them. They will desert him. Another man so treated would have chided them for their fickleness, would have reminded them of their own assurances and promises, would have demanded some kind of sorrow and repentance, would have questioned whether he could ever trust them so implicitly again. Jesus does nothing of the kind. From that day onward, not another word is said about it. When, in matter of fact, they do desert him, he will allow no man to touch them. He will suspend the very action of the passion itself, that they may be allowed to go away in peace and safety. When on Easter Day, he returns to them again. There is no word of complaint. It is all as if they had been faithful all the time. In the same way, though he has warned them sufficiently before, and they have refused to listen, at this moment there is no thought of himself and his own rights, no rebuke for their infidelity. He is troubled only about their sorrow, so definitely less than his own. He closes with words of confidence and peace for them, in spite of what they will do to him, though for himself there remains only an ocean of anguish. With the same words of peace and confidence, he will resume his intimacy after he has risen from the dead. When, be it noticed, it will be he who will come back to them, not they to him.